This is the New England Journal of Medicine COVID-19 update for March 1st, 2023. I'm Stephen Morrissey, Managing Editor of the Journal, and I'm talking with Eric Rubin, Editor-in-Chief, and Lindsay Baden, Deputy Editor. Eric and Lindsay, a couple of weeks ago, we published a study that has both interesting biology and policy implications. It was research involving a new therapeutic agent for COVID-19. So what was the agent that the researchers were investigating? Steve, this study looked at a form of interferon known as interferon lambda. There's been a great deal of study of type 1 and type 2 interferons, but interferon lambda is a type 3 interferon that differs from either of these. This group of cytokines appears to have its major effect in the epithelium, where it has antiviral activity that is broadly similar to type 1 interferons, but considerably less intense. This means that administering it results in far fewer side effects than are seen with type 1 interferons, such as those that used to be used for treating hepatitis C virus infections. However, given the short half-life of interferons, when used as therapeutic agents, they're often co-formulated with polyethylene glycol, a polymer that allows them to be administered less frequently. The study we're discussing here used this kind of formulation, a pegylated interferon lambda. The hypothesis was that this would be well-tolerated and would have antiviral activity early in SARS-CoV-2 infection. There's an important distinction between this kind of therapy and the antiviral drugs that we've been using up till now. Interferons act to enhance the host response to viruses rather than acting directly on the virus itself. Thus, unlike vaccines and monoclonal antibodies, this approach should be unaffected by new variants. I guess it's possible that viral mutations might affect the efficacy of an antiviral effect of interferon lambda, but it's not clear how this would occur. So interferon lambda-based treatment probably, if it worked at all, would work equally well for different viral clones. So Eric, I think you point out a very important concept, the innate versus the adaptive immune system. In addition to nonspecific and virally specific immune responses. And the innate immune response, which occurs immediately upon contact with pathogens, often in respiratory and GI mucosa, skin as well, actually has nonspecific responses that are anti-pathogen. That's very important conceptually as we respond to different infectious disease threats. That's different than the adaptive immune response, which we have been talking about for the last three years as we think about vaccines and other kinds of immunity that's elicited with infection that lead to high titer, neutralizing antibody or effector T cell function that typically is pathogen or virally focused, often focused best on the infecting virus and may have less efficacy on future viral variants. So I think that these investigators were looking at how we can augment this innate or intrinsic immune response that is pathogen agnostic and a very attractive strategy as a first responder, so to speak, in the immune response as adaptive immune responses take time. So how did the investigators in this study assess this pathogen agnostic feature? This was a platform trial that looked at a number of interventions, including one group that was assigned to interfere on Lambda and another that received placebo. The study period was between June of 2021 and February of 2022 and was performed at several sites in Brazil and Canada. Patients who presented to emergency rooms or other outpatient settings who had symptoms of disease, a positive COVID test, 
in at least one criterion that put them at high risk of progression, but who did not need hospitalization were included. They also added a subset without these risk factors, but with what the investigators described as severe or debilitating symptoms. Participants were followed closely for symptoms and other outcomes and had periodic repeat viral swabs. The primary outcome was a composite of COVID-19-related hospitalization owing to progression of disease or an emergency room visit prompted by COVID-19, both within 28 days of diagnosis. There were several COVID-specific and other outcomes and safety measures. So, Steve and Eric, one of the great challenges in study design is what is the important outcome? And as you point out, Eric, in this case, the authors focused on COVID-19-related hospitalization or emergency room visits, prolonged visits, more than six hours. And when one designs a study to look at benefit, one needs to carefully understand the outcome of interest to be able to determine if the therapy offers benefit. What we as practitioners have to think carefully about is how important are these endpoints. And I say endpoints because composite endpoints, Eric, as you mentioned, often have different components, an efficacy, a safety, or different sides of efficacy. And we have to look carefully at those individual components to determine if they're equally weighted in relation to the two therapies. Very often, when two therapies are compared, one can see perhaps more efficacy in one and better safety in the other, as just an example. And one needs to then carefully look at what we need clinically and how that is measured. And in this case, how efficacy is measured, such as COVID-related hospitalization or prolonged ED stay, there may be other factors that may influence the understanding of those endpoints particularly given how emergency rooms are often run and how quickly patients can go in and out of them as ways to understand the importance of the difference between groups. So I think we need to look at the endpoint of this and all studies in the way that best affords benefit to our patients, which is often not straightforward. Lindsay, I think we've seen all sorts of outcomes for COVID-19 trials, and you make an excellent point. How much do we care about each of these individual endpoints? The endpoints range from things that really don't matter to any individual and essentially are stand-ins for progression of disease, like, for example, the decrease in viral load over time. That has been an endpoint in many trials, including some of the ones we published. And on the other end of the spectrum is death, which is obviously an endpoint that we really care about, but it occurs very infrequently. So study designers have to choose endpoints that are going to occur frequently enough in the population size that they have determined for their study, and yet hopefully have some physiologic relevance. Composite endpoints like this one, as you point out, are used kind of as convenience, as a way to make it easier to get enough endpoints for a study in many cases. In this case, I think it's a little bit different. I suspect that a lot of patients who were near hospitalization were not being hospitalized, in part because of capacity in hospitals and other determinants, which had nothing to do with the study. And so therefore, they used the stand-in of emergency room visits. Other studies have used emergency room visits with extended stays in the emergency room when people were unable to be hospitalized. It is important to point out that while hospitalization is objective, they can be counted. 
the decision to hospitalize has subjective features to it. So it's not a perfect endpoint as compared to a physiologically relevant outcome, which is easy to measure. So Eric, you point out a couple of very important points, and I just want to make analogy to HIV, where the HIV viral load early in the epidemic was not well understood and outcomes of disease progression and death were the important outcomes. Investigators were able to carefully correlate with the HIV viral load, its impact on CD4 count, and then the clinically relevant outcomes of disease progression and death, allowing us as a community to use what is intuitively a relevant biologic parameter, which is the level of the pathogen in the patient. But as you point out, that has to be correlated. There are other circumstances where the viral load, the level of the pathogen is very complicated to interpret, such as an EBV and other viruses that may behave very differently. And what we've learned with SARS-CoV-2, the measurement of the viral load is fairly noisy and different in different compartments. And whether that is related to the sampling approach, whether that's related to intrinsic variability of the viral load at different times, are things that need to be worked out. So we all want, as you point out, a physiologically relevant parameter that has less noise to utilize because that will allow us to iterate much faster. We are left with what is clinically most relevant, such as disease progression as manifest by hospitalization and severe illness. But that has biologic and sociologic noise, as you point out, related to decision making for hospitalization or otherwise. So I think that we have to be very careful before we infer what we think is true until the data emerge that allow us to understand the biology and therefore have better measures. So with all of that, what did these study investigators find? The researchers recruited almost 1,000 participants each to the drug and placebo groups. Because this is a platform trial, it's a bit complicated. Some of the control group members received an oral placebo rather than an injection. Remember that the drug is given by injection. So the groups weren't perfectly matched as to the intervention. In the end, about half as many patients in the interferon-lambda-treated group ended up with the primary outcome as in the placebo group. This was largely driven by hospitalization rather than emergency room visits. The secondary outcomes generally appeared to have a similar trend, though the time to clinical recovery was the same in both groups. Not surprisingly, earlier treatment appeared to yield better outcomes, and there was little evidence of drug toxicity. So all in all, interferon lambda appeared to be effective in decreasing the risk of hospitalization in outpatient COVID-19 patients at elevated risk. There's an interesting postscript to this study. Physicians can't go out and prescribe interferon lambda today. Lindsay, I know you've been involved in helping the FDA think about drug approvals. So what can you tell us about the status of this agent? So Steve, the FDA evaluation process is complex and looks at a totality of data. I'm unaware of the plans for how this product is likely to go forward, but what I've heard is that it may not go forward due to the need for additional studies that may be prohibitive. However, I look forward to hearing more about what the plans may be. I do think, though, that there are a couple of perspectives we need to think about as we think about evidence and the strength of that evidence as we understand what to use in practice. 
So in looking at the interferon lambda story, I sort of think of three perspectives. The most important is the patient who is looking for a therapy to help them feel better, to help them get better, to prevent them from getting severely ill. The provider who wants to know how best to treat their patient. And then this other group of scientists, regulators, journals like us, who are trying to publish the best data to guide the discussion and to understand facts from the play of chance. Then the third group of perspectives are scientists, regulators, journals like ours, which is trying to determine what's safe and effective and therefore provide quality information to the community on how best to use therapies. And so the FDA and others often use the principle of multiple trials showing the same result or a very similar result to have increased confidence in minimizing the play of chance. And I raise that because as I look at this study, this group is a terrific group that has helped develop the platform trial design, which really has come into view in the last two, three years in response to this epidemic that has allowed the research community to be more nimble and faster in testing new compounds to see their benefit in relation to treating COVID. However, this trial alone, I think, has at least 12 different arms that are part of the platform. So if one imagines, for example, 100 different phase two or three trials looking at efficacy, what proportion of them may have a positive signal as defined by a p-value of less than 0.05. Not to undermine the value of these data, but for us as a community to think a little bit beyond the strength of an individual trial and the context within which many trials are going on, some of which the play of chance may affect the final outcome as measured by the p-value, which we put a lot of stock in although I worry a little bit about how well it helps us understand truth. But the data, such as from this study, which is a well-done, large, phase 2-3 efficacy trial, is very encouraging that this mechanism, which is well understood, or reasonably well understood, likely leads to this type of benefit in this type of patient with this type of outcome. So I think that is reassuring, it's encouraging, I suspect it does work, but I do want all of us as a community to think carefully about how we understand truth as we have to accept that hundreds of efficacy trials are going on, some of which will tell us truth, some of which may have the play of chance at work that we have to mitigate. So I just raise that, Steve, to say that the FDA and other regulatory agencies around the world have a very tough job in looking at safety, efficacy, mechanism, and mitigating the play of chance given the volume of research going on in this space, and therefore challenges across studies, which are very difficult to weigh as the studies are done independently and therefore difficult to look at together, because they shouldn't be. But yet, when hundreds of them are done, we have to think carefully about what is truth, versus what may have some element of noise. Lindsay, I think you're doing a very good job of introducing the complexity involved in not only the regulatory aspect, but the decisions involved to bring a drug to market. Now, 
I don't know how important interferon lambda is from this study, but it has many potential advantages. In particular, its potential ability to work against multiple new viral strains as they emerge. The way that this study was designed has implications for its ability to be approved. And if this is not sufficient, then another study would be required for a lot of money. It's not clear what the commercial considerations are when it applies to new drugs, given that there are things out there and that there is less independent funding available for studying a lot of new agents. So because of a nimble design, as you're describing it, it's conceivable that a drug won't come to market or might be considerably delayed in its introduction to the market because it was done in a way that wouldn't pass FDA requirements from the start. So it's a double-edged sword, and it's not an easy decision to make. Do you do a more rapid study that allows you to study many potential agents with the understanding that a second confirmatory study will be needed? Or do you place your bets on a few agents and say, these are the ones that we think are really important. We're going to put a lot of money up front in order to get them all the way through to approval in a single step. It is difficult, but what it means in this case is we may not have interferon lambda available for a while, even if it is a very effective agent. And Eric, I think you do raise the important point of different mechanisms and the value of having therapies that work through different mechanisms, particularly as we see the pathogen, the virus COVID, continue to evolve and escape therapies. So there is a high scientific and clinical value in having new agents that approach the clinical problem differently. Having said that, as you pointed out, it's a big economic lift for companies to do the studies that demonstrate safety and efficacy. And the more studies that need to be done, the higher the cost and the delay in time. The flip side is how confident are we in the data that are currently available to allow a new therapy to move forward to wide use? And that's a very difficult question to answer. And it's a different question in March of 2020 than March of 2023, given the population immunity, the other therapies available, vaccines, and other kinds of countermeasures. So it's a very difficult arena, and it is a big economic investment of companies to do these rigorous studies that may or may not have a return on investment. And we as a community have to decide how we think about infectious diseases that are so globally transmissible and what types of countermeasures we want to invest in as a community that have available both in high-income and low-income environments. Thank you, Lindsay. Thank you, Eric.